The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. <clears throat> so we, we'd like to check in a little bit on how the week went for you. Yeah, how, how was your experience in looking at the Five Wishes document? Any takers? Yes. Um, my name is Mary. I working. Is it hello? Is it working? It's working. Okay. Um, I really appreciated how it put everything in. I didn't need to worry about listing anything, and you know, now it's just a matter of figuring out people I want to add. And I mean, I already have one, you know, but. But this one, I think, is more expressive of all the things that I want to consider, you know, if I'm dying. I mean, if I don't die suddenly or something, you know. Um, so thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah. Other people? I mean, I think my challenge... Yeah, that's fine. Um, my challenge was who to name as the people because I had done this before a couple of years ago and the people are no longer able to be that, you know, the three people that we named. So my concern was that people that before were suitable are now so ill themselves or they've just, you know, in a situation where they're not available. So I'd like to know some suggestions in terms of um, if fam- you know, family is limited and they're not able to do it, what you suggest in finding someone, because it seems to me it has to be a long-term relationship, like the people I had I, before. I can't imagine any closer relationship yes. than having someone speak for you uh, concerning your yeah. life. Mm-hmm. And yes, we will go into that. Yeah, okay. Other people? I'm Diana. I have done um, an advanced directive in the past, and I thought it was going to cover most everything, but it, did, it obviously didn't, because when I read this document and had uh, a number of choices, that's when I realized there were some elements I hadn't even considered, particularly um, the ones that provide spiritual and mental comfort. Um, and so I, I welcome this document. I've, I've gone through it briefly, one round, and crossed through a few things, but I know it's going to take some time to elaborate on the other things. So, Yes, thank it, will, you. it will take time, uh, definitely. And um, I'll be going over uh, a lot of resources, that, uh, printed resources that you can get uh, online at the website that answer a lot of these uh, questions very directly. We have anyone else from the other part of the rooms? Okay. Next. So we want to look at, we're going to look at a lot today around preparing for death and preparing for dying. And this slide is really representing the kinds of things we start doing now, or maybe we've already been doing, hopefully. And those, the first four items here come from a particular teaching of the Buddha that you'll see in the Anguttara Nikaya, or the numerical discourses. 
And we've got this one up online so you can read it. Uh, by the way, is there was someone here who needs the materials printed out, and we've got some printed out materials. Thank you. That will be coming your way sooner rather than later. <laughs> and because um, we don't want to put anything off, you know. You never know. <laughs> so the Buddha said that there are are four powers that we should develop. And if, if we develop these four powers, there are five fears that we don't have to have. And the first fear he mentions is the fear of the loss of livelihood, that we don't have to fear the loss of livelihood. How many people have ever feared the loss of livelihood? <laughs> yes, many of us, most of us, one time or another. He also said if you develop these four powers, you don't have to fear getting a bad reputation. You also don't have to fear being timid in any, any assembly. You can walk with your head high and be confident. And you don't have to fear death, and you don't have to fear what comes after death. And this is about the point in the presentation where I usually say, so are you interested in knowing what those four powers are? Yeah. <laughs> so the Buddha said the, the first one that he mentions is wisdom, the power of wisdom. And then he goes on to explain what he means by wisdom in this case. And wisdom here is knowing the difference between what's wholesome and unwholesome, what's skillful and unskillful, what's blamable and what's unblamable. And he goes through a few more pairs of descriptors around that. That's wisdom. And then to cultivate the power of energy. And in this case, he's talking about the energy to reject those things that are unwholesome, blamable, dark, and put our energy into focusing on developing those qualities that are wholesome, not blamable, bright. The third power, he says, is the power of blamelessness. And I, I equated that with virtue. And he's talking about keeping the precepts, really living a virtuous life. Then we don't have to be timid. We don't have to be... Uh, worried about a reputation. Now, the reality is that we all get blamed no matter what we do. And he also says that in another place. And the Buddha got blamed. But when you practice and, and develop virtue and maintain virtue, then the people who are blaming, let's put it this way, our interest is in whether or not we would be blamed by the wise, not the unwise. We're interested in whether or not we would be blamed by the wise and not concerned about whether we're blamed by the unwise. If blame is coming out of one's own defilements, greed, hatred, and delusion, then, you know, as we, as, as the Buddha, when he received that kind of blame, he said to the person, do you ever have people come over to your house and bring you gifts and 
if you say you're not receiving those gifts, who do they belong to? And the person answered, they belong to the people who were bringing them. And he said, that's, what, that's what's happening here with your blame. I'm not receiving it. It belongs to you. <laughs> I like that. Me too. <laughs> so blamelessness in the way we, we live. And finally, the surprise one for me as I read that discourse the first time is the, the power of sustaining favorable relationships. And I tried to understand this. And he, in another place he describes, or he describes in there, but he describes in a couple of places what he means by that. You know, how to support our friendships, how to support the people in our life when we have a, a relationship of give and take, giving them gifts if that's going to help them, being, giving kind words, supportive um, actions, and so on. And I started to really reflect on how does this relate to those five fears when it comes to cultivating or sustaining favorable relationships. I was brought back to my upbringing in a small town. I grew up on a farm. And I, and I was recalling the times when people pulled together to help each other. So our neighbor farm, farmer got sick one spring and my father planted all of his corn for him. And one year, my father had a farming accident, and all the neighbors came in and finished the harvest. And it's when you have a network, when you have those, those favorable relationships, you don't have to have so much fear of losing your livelihood. We support each other when there's a breakdown. And that's really important as we age. And, and we do have that issue of, of some of our support network passes away before we do. But developing the skill of maintaining and sustaining favorable relationships means we make new friends. And we bring new relationships into our lives. My mother at age 90, her, her collection of friends and support has changed over the years a number of times. But it's the skill that's important the power of being able to, to do that. And we've already talked about kindness, karma, and keeping track of the, the, the good acts that we've done in our life to remind us of our own goodness, to be clear that we've done many things that are wholesome. And we can bring that to mind and have our mind continuously, continually in a space of support and uplift for that because of that. doesn't mean everything's happy and smooth and easy for sure, but when we can reflect back on the good things that we've done, it helps. Well, there are some things that people like to know about preparing to enter the medical system, uh, hopefully as a um, collegial partnership. But let me answer some of the questions that were that brought up. There are lots of different um, types of documents. So this is the five wishes. This is uh, state of California. 
Uh, anybody in, in Kaiser? They have theirs. Anybody with PAMF? They have theirs. And uh, the question came up, which one should you use? If you're in a medical system that is designed to use their own document, use it. You can always add, as I have, because I use the five wishes, uh, what I call an appendix, which is a statement of my own values and the specifics. Of the multitude of things that we've posted uh, that I've written, that includes that document that is from my own personal advance directive. So it is written by a physician, and so I, I intersperse English with doctor. And so I, I wouldn't expect that people would do it exactly as I did, but at least you'll see how a person who's familiar with how doctors think would word stuff. Um, the other thing is people, uh, you, you, who mentioned about the um, five wishes jogging your memory for things that you, want, that you didn't remember to put in the first time? These are go-wish cards. Does anybody know about those? These have a lot of little things that you might not have remembered. And you can get them on coda.org or, as we posted online, these are the texts of the go-wish cards. So these are designed to help you expand your horizons. Question. For you personally, which is more frightening? Death or dying? dying. Most people, in my experience, uh, feel that way. So I need to speak very directly about uh, not that you can avoid it, but how you can manage it. Um, first of all, you have to understand the goals of treatment for illness. In oncology, success of treatment is measured by how long you live, or the disease-free interval, how long the cancer is uh, not visible. That's insufficient. Human beings live in three dimensions, or probably more than that, but at least they could be considered how long you live, how high is, by the by, everything that I'm saying is already on the website. It's all printed up for you. So if you absolutely have compulsive note-taking, go right ahead. Otherwise, you're not going to miss anything because it's all there <laughs> already. Um, and so the idea that you have the length of your life the heights of quality of life, and the depth of meaning or purpose in life. Human beings make meaning. And events are meaningful, and we can recognize it. It's multiple ways in which that can happen. So when I talk about the goals of treatment, whether you are in a curative process or one in which the, the emphasis is on quality of life, you know, this, this is a box, and it's longer than this box. 
This box is obviously larger. There's the length, there's the height of quality, and the depth of meaning. Not all boxes are created equal because the size of your life depends on one of the most important things, what you put in it. If you, as this course is designed to help, put your dharma and your practice into your life, your life will grow. It, um, it is the nutrients uh, of living a life of virtue, which is uh, Aya Santosiska mentioned. I still have trouble with your name. And I can't spell it either. <laughs> um, the thought about looking at what you are trying for at any given point in the course of your life, I believe should be considered in these different dimensions. Um, advanced care planning. How old do you have to be to do advanced care planning? I suggest sometime after acquiring language abilities. <laughs> uh, customarily, people talk about it as uh, planning for end-of-life care. It's not. It's planning for your life. And so the skills that you develop right now today will help you as you then go into other areas in which planning is useful. Some people think of it as, you know, get your advanced directive. Is that the most important part of it? The advanced care, the advanced directive? Go like this. That is not the most important. The most important part is the conversation. And the conversation is within each of us. It is with our family. It is with the medical system. So there are multiple conversations. It's not easy to start some of these. Look at the reluctance of uh, so many people to actually complete an advanced directive. How many people have advanced directives that they are absolutely, positively, would put their pink slip on it, perfectly complete? So you have talked with your doctor. Uh, your eyes are going up in the upper left, so that means that you're imagining it. <laughs> <laughs> um, is, are you sure that it is uh, up to date because people change so this is the conversation that is necessary because you need to let other people know and if they do sometimes you don't need a document uh, smart money says have one but uh, sometimes if you've spoken with your medical team, if you've spoken with your family, uh, speaking with your agent. By the way, the, somebody wondered how to choose an agent if somebody died. I have two, there's a agent one and agent two. There's no 007. 
these are how to choose a person and what are the um, requirements for that person to accurately represent you. Now, question, does your agent make decisions for you? How many say yes? The real answer is all they have to decide is whether they will represent what you have decided. And sometimes they will face opposition. Opposition from bureaucracy, from doctors, from the daughter or brother living in Saskatoon who rolls in and suddenly demands do everything. So make sure that the agent that whom you choose understands what will be required of her or him. The person who will need that document does not exist yet for you. Because you will have experiences that will shape you between today and when that document may be called upon to be active. So it is a living document. I uh, review it every year, come January. Certainly if there's been any uh, major changes in your life, uh, the same thing for uh, updating legal documents, a, a, a divorce, uh, a death in the family, um, a d development of some disease that would um, be problematic. So it's, even though it's, though it's in ink, it can be revised. All you have to do is make sure that everybody gets the new copy. So what do you need to do to make sure of that? Have a list of everybody you gave it to. So that you can say, up, oh, I've got um, the newest edition. And you can uh, number them, just as they do software. No, I'm talking about advanced directive. Advanced directive is different from Pulse, and I will get to this inconspicuous document. You'll be taken care of by a team uh, when you're ill. Sometimes in a medical system, uh, that team will be already uh, preformed. Uh, otherwise, you may have to assemble those teams. And you can have non-MDs as part of your team. You can have your acupuncturist, your naturopath, your massage therapist. All of these people are, uh, can be integral to the care that you need and uh, just really want to have. What? Yes? Spiritual team. Duh, what are we doing here? <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. How about the professional choir? Pardon me? Professional choir? Threshold. Threshold like choir. Like the, the, the space between two rooms. And they were started in the Bay Area about 15 or 16 years ago. They are now international. Um, 
we have a peninsula choir. Um, do you sing in this choir? I do sing in this choir. Would you get the information about how to contact that? Thresholdchoir.org. Okay. Threshold, uh, all one word, T-R-E-S-H-O-L-D, choir.org. And the songs are very simple, written by Threshold Choir members, starting off in unison and then adding harmonies, and they are like sung prayers. I would imagine also um, you would want chants. And uh, the, the, sorry for the playing words, you should leave nothing to chance. Um, you can get recordings, and certainly you can have people who are accustomed as part of their spiritual practice uh, to chant, uh, act in that same capacity. Okay, types of care. Curative, so that the treatment is focused on the disease process. So in my line of work, that would be focused on cancer. And then I'm going to use a Greek word palacia, to cloak someone, to provide a protection. And we get that word palliative care from that. And that is person-centered care. They are compatible. In fact, in a study of metastatic lung cancer, half the people got chemotherapy, and the other half got palliative care and chemotherapy. Since I'm bringing it up, which group lived longer? Yeah, because the quality of life determines whether you want to stick around. And that, that is a, a, a fact. And so there's no time limit on when you put, when you are involved. Hospice care is mechanically almost the same, except that there is an administrative definition of uh, life expectancy of six months or less. What can they do to you if you live longer than that? <laughs> what can they do to you if you decide get better and you don't need it? Nothing. You, you, you can disenroll. So uh, it's not an irrevocable decision. And it is not for the last 24 hours of your life either. Um, some, sometimes doctors won't think of palliative care, but you can, and you can request it. So right now, I mean now in, in, the, uh, in the present time, uh, find out where, what palliative care services are available to you. Yes, ma'am. I have a relative in hospice right now, and she's in the fourth month of hospice. So. Is this, um, when you said six months, let's say that they, they die at month seven, does that mean that in six months they stop everything? No, no, then, no. So no, do no, they no. continue just, on yes, if someone continues. is? Okay. That's what I There's yeah. a reevaluation, but in many cases that's quite straightforward. So it's just the book work. Now, people brought up the idea of a post. Adeline wants to say something. A POLST is a physician order for life-sustaining treatment. It's a legal physician order. 
it is appropriate pretty much only for people for whom you would not be surprised if they died within six months. This is not something you carry around in, in your wallet because it really does refer to somebody who has ongoing, like multi-admission to the hospital kinds of illnesses. It is useful mainly for the hospitalists and physicians caring for you while you're in the hospital. It may also be useful if you are in a uh, nursing facility and have specific interest in not leaving that nursing facility to get transferred to the hospital. So it has its own um, very important usefulness, but is different from an advanced directive. Um, I'm going to be shamelessly self-promoting. I've written a couple of books. Get them on Amazon, they're cheaper. If you get them, I will be happy to autograph them. If you don't have them in time, I will sign some, I will autograph a, like a prescription pad that you can paste in it. And, and, and the reason I suggest this is I go over so much in more detail illustrated by the, the uh, vignettes of my patients on operationally how to do things. Live longer, live larger. A holistic approach to, for cancer patients and families. If you um, put my name on Amazon, it'll come up. I'm the seven billionth most popular book. <laughs> uh, and then this is uh, Living Beyond Expectations. Stories patients have taught me about living longer and better lives. And so, no, you don't need to buy these. But um, they have information in presented in a way that is very user-friendly. Live, live longer, live larger. That refers to the size of your life. The next slide asks about your own death. I'm about to play a song for you that absolutely rep represents about the most important thing about living today that you can do. I believe I hope so.
That pretty well sums it up, doesn't it? Waste not an opportunity to love well and to be kind. It doesn't come back again. Um, managing, if, if you are indeed concerned about the quality of your own life and you are in a terminal phase um, and you have symptoms, uh, if I say, who are you going to call? It's not Ghostbusters, it's the palliative care team. If your doctor is not managing your pain, there is no excuse, as far as I'm concerned, for someone being in uncontrolled pain. There are too many ways that that can be approached successfully. In about 40 years of practice, I would say I've had about two patients for whom, try as I might, I could not control their pain. I don't know whether it was existential uh, or what, but it was not something that I could do or any of my colleagues knew how to do. There are other ways of approaching it that, under those circumstances. Um, ask your doctor what their policy is about involving palliative care. Some doctors will consider that um, like I failed. Uh-uh. This is not to replace you, doctor. This is to allow you to do what you do best. Take care of me. Then they can take care of some of the things that will make your job easier. Um, how about your support system? I have a daughter and her fiancé who are both um, advanced care nurses. And so they have pledged, because I'm housing them while they find their own house, um, to take care of me when uh, I need them. So having a couple of nurse practitioners in the family is a really good idea, but not everybody has that. Your support team will probably include people who do not share your last name or DNA. You will have friends. Uh, I'm thinking of uh, starting a Kali Alamita group here after this uh, series is over, and I'll get to that later. But there are ways that we can support each other. Um, what is one of the most important tools for pain control? For what? For pain control. Catching it before it gets out of control. Catching it before it gets out of control. That's, that is one of the very most important. And administering the medication on a... Uh, on a preventive fashion. Basis. Yes, that's another one. Also relieving anxiety. Relieving anxiety. Meditation. Know the body as the body. Being mindful of your body as the body. Not your body, but the body. Because everybody in this room has one. So it's the body. And if you know that and practice diligently, what everybody in this room is doing at least some, somewhat, that is the optimum pain control.
because it prevents the second arrow. Better yet, stop shooting. You pull out the second arrows that, got, that landed, but if you, if you don't shoot, then you don't have to pull them out. Assisted dying. Their law in California uh, started June 10th last year and is called the End of Life Options Act. It is not suicide. It is not assisted suicide. It is aid in dying. It is an issue that is more complex than you even can grasp. I lecture to professional and lay audiences about it. Uh, I have my own position about it. And I can tell you that doctors have been relieving suffering with compassionate exits from life for millennia upon millennia. Unfortunately, before this law, the way that patients did it was with a gun, usually to the head. If nothing else, it makes a loud noise and a big mess. A colleague of mine, a doctor, uh, was taking care of her father who was on uh, hospice. And um, because she's a doctor and she knew about this law, she went through all the legal processes, which is like a ton of paperwork, to acquire the medicines, which are barbiturates, that have to be swallowed by the individual. And so she asked her father each day, did he wish to take his option? And that was the phrase that she used. And each day, even though it was right there for him, he said no. Until he was no longer able to swallow, so it was no longer an option. So what he had um, was the difference between both and and. A-N-D is allow natural death. Assisted dying, I, use an, I invented this acronym, both, because it affects the body, it affects others, it impacts the truth of your life, and it addresses humility. Do we have the humility to recognize the frailty of this incarnation? And if we are engaged in skillful means, um, what will our truth be? And particularly with the issue of uh, coming back, the intention of life and the intention at the passing of life is important. When we think about setting an intention from the, the traditional perspective, the way the Buddha taught, he said that if you want to be reborn in a particular realm, 
you can set that intention to go to that place. And if you are virtuous, you've lived your life in a pure way and you've got your mind set on a particular heaven realm, you're likely to go there. So before I became a Buddhist nun, I was an interfaith minister. And studying the different religions and growing up with Christianity, I, my sense of it is that all the major religions have some sense of what happens after death. And when we think about what those different traditions teach, there's some kind of rebirth somewhere. Even if you don't think of it as there's like one place you might go, that's a rebirth. So I know that sometimes people have trouble with that concept of rebirth, and yet most of us have some kind of conditions in our past, in our history, about what happens after that last breath in this body. So the Buddha recommended that we set our sights on something beyond this life and that we live in a way that moves in that direction. So what he was saying there is if you put your intention on being in this realm that you have in mind, and then you live a life that's not in accord with what it would mean to stay there, you're not going to go. Yeah? But if you do live a life in accord with what that living would be in that other place, there's a very good chance you'll go there. So as, as I've been you know, living in monasteries and talking with various monks and nuns about this idea, one of the things that some of us, maybe most of us, would say is setting an intention on reappearing in a place where I can practice the Dhamma, where there will be Dharma practitioners, where we'll know about the Buddhist teachings. And so that's one way to think of it. You don't have to like have some particular image in mind. We don't really quite know. Most of us don't have that psychic power to see the other realms, but we can have that, you know, like, what do I want beyond this? A place where, where the beings are kind, a place where we can trust each other. And then because we live that way, we're going that way. And I think it's useful for myself, you know, I, I want to look at my own mental states. And if I am going in the direction of the mental states I have now, is that the direction I want to go? Do I want to continue to have, you know, if we have fear and anxiety and whatever, you know, maybe that's not the way we want to continue. What can we do to mitigate that? And this kind of, back to those four powers, this understanding that those kinds of mental states are not the, the wise ones, the wholesome, the uplifting. So what can I do to work with those fears? Again, cultivating those powers, cultivating the Noble Eightfold Path, cultivating the kinds of friendships that help remind us of our goodness and encourage us to be, to, to be good, to do good, to think in a way that's going to lead to where we want to go and create what we want right now. And it's as somebody has, well, as the Buddha said, if there's no other realm, you still win in this realm. <laughs> so go for it. <laughs> yeah. 
do people know about Pascal's wager? He got it, it from the Buddha. Yes, <laughs> he did. That was exactly true. That um, he said that uh, either if there's if there's a God, then there's a heaven and a hell. So while you're living now, if you practice godliness or virtue, if there is God, then you'll go to heaven. Or if you are not virtuous, you'll go to hell. And if there's no God, and there's no heaven or hell, then you haven't lost anything. But if you guess wrong and think you can get away with an unvirtuous life, you're screwed. <laughs> That's not quite um, ecclesiastical. Is that, a that quote? That was, no, 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 no. I don't think Pasquale. Uh, I think he said it in French, and I'm not quite <laughs> entirely sure what the word was in French. More poetic, but probably <laughs> the same thing. <laughs> so, how do we come to peace? And it, basically, it's with the same practices. It's one of the things I love about the Buddhist teachings. It's these practices are good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end. And I wanted to share with you that um, during this past week or 10 days, um, my, mother, the, my mother's condition has changed. And um, we found out that she has hydrocephalus, which is water on the brain. And it's already deteriorated the brain. Um, she has a lot of trouble with walking and balance and memory and confusion, and this is all part of that disease. Then last Friday, we found out that she has uh, internal bleeding somewhere. And when she and I talked about that test result, she said, I'm falling apart. And we talked about how, well, she's the one who said, but that's natural, that's the way it is when you get to this point. And we talked about how this is, this is dying. She's, she's in that phase. And she said, I'm not going to worry about it. And then she said, so where am I going to be buried? And we talked about the plan. After the cremation, I'm going to take the ashes and meet my brother, fly back to the Midwest and meet my brother and we'll drive to DeMott, Indiana where she lived for 50 years plus and we'll bury the ashes next to my father. And we've already, I've already talked with the, the people who take care of the cemetery and they said, we don't have to contact anybody. We can just go out there with a shovel and <laughs> do it. <laughs> I love my hometown. <laughs> and then she said, but I don't remember how it looks there. And fortunately, we, she wanted to go back last summer, and we did. We traveled back, and we saw all the places where she grew up and where we lived and talked with lots of people, saw family, and she can't remember most of it, but I have photos. And I got the pictures out that I took of the graves and the, and the grave, the, the cemetery, and she could see where she's going to be. There's with my dad. Of course, we talked about how that's just the body. 
And then I reminded her, she went with me to Thailand nine years in a row to the monasteries. And we were staying in Ajahn Dun's monastery at one point, and she said to my son, who was a monk at that time still, um, and me, she said, the body is nothing. I saw my body thrown into the corner like a monk's robe. And so we talked about that. And through this conversation, she's just so peaceful. And she knows. She knows that it's not the body that's worthy, worthy of attachment. It's not even the workings of the brain. There's something in the heart. And she seems clear about that. So she's very clear. We've talked about it with my brother and my, my son and my daughter, and she's clear that she doesn't want to go to the doctor and find out. You know, I mean, the only real treatment for that hydrocephalus is a major surgery. She doesn't want that. She doesn't even want to go to the hospital if she's having a heart attack or a stroke. She just wants to be there with me. And so we started hospice yesterday. And even with all that preparation of monastic visits and time to think, and for me, I find that my heart is still quite raw. You know, you, 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 those feelings, when you, got, when you get that diagnosis, it's like a punch to the gut. But when you are able to, to, to feel that, be present with it, to know that that's natural. There's so much that we're, we're wired to survive. We're wired to want our loved ones to stay with us. But we know more than that. And it's like, you can just like, wow, that's a strong feeling. But it's a feeling. And this bigger reality that, that this particular incarnation is one slice in a very long path. And it's that opportunity that we have even in this moment as things are falling apart, maybe especially in this moment as things are falling apart, to, to really connect to that reality, to see it, to, to feel it, and to be at peace with it. So that's what's happening. She's teaching me this course. <laughs> she has a very good student. She's teaching us. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. You're welcome. So really, there's nothing to fear. Actually, there's only one thing to fear, and it's wrongdoing. It's that thing that creates the unfinished business and the karma that we somehow have to find a resolution through, and we can. I mean, when I think of some of the stories of the time of the Buddha and things that people did and then found their way to peace and wholeness and enlightenment, there isn't anything that we've done that we can't overcome. That there's always a spiritual recovery path. So don't be worried about that. Just turning, turning to see the truth and take it in. I volunteer at the El Camino Hospital, uh, actually in the 
chaplain's department and I was visiting uh, one of the wards today and there was a, uh, a young woman, my age, almost any woman's young, um, and she was dying uh, of a cancer of the back of the throat. Uh, Chinese, raised uh, in a Buddhist uh, household, though um, it's not the Theravadan Buddhism that, it, that we're probably most uh, familiar with. And I am not trained as a chaplain. Um, but what I was able to do, and it brought her comfort, is to remind her of the goodness that she had done in her life. And that that goodness carries on to protect her children, her 15-year-old son. And that's not really an insurance policy, but it is an assurance policy that the goodness matters. The kindness and love and compassion and generosity matters. And it's something we can do right in this moment. So I want to talk about this practice. There's a, a discourse of the Buddhas that we've posted online for this week. where he And it's in your book, Beyond Coping. Beyond coping, I've assigned readings for this this week around the advice around death that the Buddha that it, that are in that that book and this uh, discourse of the Buddha is where he goes to the sick ward of the monks and he tells them how to practice to receive death and basically it's the satipatthana sutta the foundations of mindfulness but he adds a bit of a twist in there and it, you know some additions to help orient the mind as we experience the body as the body and feeling as feeling he walks us through feeling painful feeling and knowing that it's dependent upon this body it's it's in constant it's a changing and it's dependent upon this body as a condition when the body goes the painful feeling goes it can't it won't be there anymore <coughs> he also talks about pleasant feeling neutral feeling and to really focus on that inconstancy and the dispassion with it he says you feel that feeling, but you're not joined with it. It's, it's there, and you're here. It's like they're, they're, you're, not, you're not wrapped up in that, whatever feeling it is anymore. Focused on the inconstancy, the dispassion, the cessation, the relinquishment. And so I think today we're going to, we're not going to have the meditation here, but that's the meditation I'd like you to try to engage in during the week. And I'm going to try to do a recording of a guided meditation on it and post it. If I have a chance, I will do that. Please. Oh, there might be one on the CD. Well, that'd be great.
you might look for that on the CD. Is, is that sort of a similar suit as on the, on the CD? There was a CD that came along yeah, with, yeah. Our, it's, it's actually probably MP3 format that came along with yeah. the book Beyond Coping. And so on there, I'm, I'm afraid I haven't had a chance to listen to it yet, but I've heard great things about it, and it might, there might be a guided meditation there. Oh, yes? In the Could you get a microphone? Oh, I just have a, where is it? And we just have a microphone for you to have it, just to have it. I just was wondering, in the book, in Beyond Coping, is there, is there a chapter that you're talking about, or what? Is yes, the, I think the chapter is advice. I give the pages in the homework, so you'll get oh, okay. the sheet at the end, and you'll okay. see the pages. Great. And I also include in the suggested reading is, are the pages on separation. So the way the Buddha talks about being separated from what we love. And it's interesting because it's very normal for us to grieve, to be sad, to miss um, people and things. But the Buddha, nowhere that I've ever seen in the Pali Canon, ever says, I'm sorry for your loss. Or you you know, poor dear. It's really always turning towards the bigger picture, giving people the bigger picture from which to view their experience in a way that you just, it, the understanding becomes so clear. This is a, nat, not only is this a natural process, but this process is something we've been through again and again and again. And the real gain of this existence is the gain of meeting up with the Dharma and developing the heart in a way that brings us a kind of inner stability that's unshakable. And that's available to all of us. So we want to invite you to get together in your small groups We've got a couple of suggestions up here on the screen about what to talk about, but at this point you may want to talk about something else, and that's totally okay. And my guess is you remember what the ground rules are. Yeah? Ground rules for meeting together, confidentiality, allowing each other um, time to speak. Don't enlighten each other. Enlighten yourself. <laughs> okay. So we'll... First, of, before we break, are there any comments or questions that you'd like to bring up right now? Is there's a microphone yes. maybe behind, behind you? There's, we'll get to you next. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to expand just a teeny bit on what you were saying, Bill, about the palliative care uh, support that any of us can receive, and that's the fact that it's a consultation that we need to ask for. And I just want to be very direct about that. That's important to understand in any medical setting is is that um, these team members don't arrive in your room. They have to be requested, and they can be requested, and it's a very it's becoming increasingly understood how much they can bring to a patient's care but it's a new field of practice and doctors have needed to adjust to having this person come into the room with this 
kind of end-of-life expertise and, and um, maybe they haven't been certain what they were going to do, et cetera. But in our area, I think palliative care is really nicely integrated into the system. But I think it's important to know that you have to ask for it. Thank you. You wanted to say something, right? Okay. Somebody else want to speak first? You go ahead, and then we'll get to her. Um, I wondered, uh, this is for Bill, I wondered if you have experienced a person just deciding that they no longer wanted to eat. I assume that you're not referring to going on a diet. (laughs) Hardly. That, That is a way that is gentle, um, is not painful just to not eat. Mm-hmm. And um, after a day or so, people just lose their appetite. It is not starving to death. There is not the craving for food. So it is not an unpleasant uh, process. It sounds simple. Very. And it avoids both. Yeah. Body, other, truth, and humility. Thank you. I don't know if this is appropriate here, but I, uh, I feel. Oh, sorry. I have some. I feel as though I have some unfinished business. Um, I have an ex-husband who is now has Alzheimer's, and he is in a facility, and I see him occasionally. And uh, I just am still, like, angry with him. Mm -hmm. Not angry, angry, but I have very little caring or loving or anything toward him. And I feel badly about it. and I just wondered if there was something. Boing. Yeah, let me. <laughs> so, um, wait, 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 wait. I don't, I don't get it. Yeah, it's okay. Um, there's a lot you can do with this. And one thing, there's a lot you can do with this. And one thing that you can do is tease apart the different feelings you've mentioned. Anger, look at anger, look at resentment. And then those uh, sort of negative mental states are quite different from the absence of caring, love. And I wouldn't put so much attention on that absence of caring and love. I would first put attention on whatever negative mental states arise with the memory of the things that have happened. And one way that you can work with this is to look at what actually happened and identify and know clearly with wisdom what that was. Because people do things that are horrible. People do things that are unskillful. We do things that are unskillful. And when we can look at that and we can see it for what it was, and that means as much as you can trying to look into what might have been behind it. Sometimes we assume a kind of malice that may have actually not been there, for example. And you can maybe discover that. This is all internal work. You don't have to do this work with the other person. You do it with yourself. 
sometimes we can recognize just by opening the mind to possibilities around what had happened in a way that we can see better what the person's intentions were perhaps, what our intentions were perhaps. And at some point, we just acknowledge this was really unskillful. This, are the condition, this is the conditioning and the habits of this person or their worldview or whatever it is. My own habits and my own worldview and my own conditioning were in play. What part of that do I want to shift away from in myself? What part of that can I just acknowledge is over there with them? And the, the more we can see it clearly and hold that wisdom, the more peaceful we can become about it. It's like Ajahn Chah gave this teaching about knowing the animals in the forest. He said you should know the animals in the forest. Like you don't treat the poisonous snake the same way you treat the bunny rabbit. You don't give the tiger the same treatment as you do the deer. So it's not like, oh, I just have to love everybody and everybody's the same and it's just like I've got to have all this. No, you have to know the animals of the forest and you have to know the people in the world. And some of them you avoid, and some of them you have to have careful, clear boundaries with. But that doesn't mean that you have to hold some kind of negative feeling about that. You just know it. And then the negative feelings, if you look at, there's a beautiful discourse in the middle length discourses, I think it's number eight, called, I think the translation for the title is effacement. And in that sutta, the Buddha goes through five stages of working with different mental states and practice, you know, like he goes through the Noble Eightfold Path and the precepts, he includes all of that in there, 44 different qualities there, including resentment and anger and the rest. He goes through and he helps you look at them, work with them, um, replace them, and let go of them. And there's like five stages in there. So you can take that practice and really work with it and look at what's going on in my own heart. How can I really work my way through this? And where do I find that? It's in the middle length discourses, the Majjhima Nikaya. That means middle length discourse. This is, these, this is from the Pali Canon. Well, there's a book on the shelf in the library. The upper shelves have the Pali Canon books, and you can just get the middle-length discourses. It's a book that's got a red, reddish-brown book cover. Middle-length discourses of the Buddha. And it's sutta number eight. Effacement. Effacement. Efface. Effacement. Um, two Fs. Yeah, but it's it's okay. If you get number eight, you'll you'll see it. Okay. Yeah, and so the Buddha gave us the tools to practice with this, so that we don't have unfinished business, and you don't have to do the practice with the other person. Even if they've passed away, even if they're whatever, that's their practice and their life and their trajectory is their responsibility, and yours is yours. And whatever someone else thinks of you or does to you, 
That's their problem. You're welcome. Anything else right now? We can go to our small groups and we'll take Take a half 25, hour. Minutes, 25 minutes 25 minutes in our small groups and then we'll let That'll you be know 5 minutes after um, 3 Yeah, 3 So, we have a few minutes for sharing. Oh, quite a few. Is there anything you'd like to offer into this larger space? Well, in our group, um, someone said that um, he was considering um, what are the things which, if taken away, would leave me not wanting to live? And it was a little turnaround on the question, but I found it very, very rich. Yes. And I'm going to use it. Yes. You know, that chant that we've been doing, all that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise, will become separated from me, is very much along that line. And you can use that as a contemplation. You know, what would I do if the house burns down? What would I do if this person in my life suddenly was not in my life anymore? What would I do if this particular capability were to fall away? And be bold and courageous and really look at the things that are closest to your heart because that's where you get the real benefit of, of holding whatever is happening there, being with it, applying the practice to it. And that's what builds our spiritual muscle. And sometimes we have to start with small things and build up to it, but it's, um, it's endlessly rewarding. But the subject for next week is going to be faith. That'd be one of the central things. Well, it's a bit more than that. It's uh, about eight times that, but we'll go there. <laughs> a small, tiny fraction of next week will be It's the beginning. Um, one eighth of next week. Uh, and I would encourage people to examine the faith they have in themselves. It's a different kind of faith than we're talking about in a more spiritual. This is kind of a, uh, when we use the word confidence, means with faith. Con, with, three days, faith. Um, I just want to... Um express my gratitude to um, Aya Santusika for sharing that about your mom. It's very, very meaningful. So I appreciate you doing that. Thank you. I also want to thank you about the suggestions of dealing with anger and resentment and so forth because that's something I would definitely like to clear up more. There's, um, here's, this is what the middle-length discourses looks like. This is the reference copy from the library here. And um, this is the translation from um, Venerable Nyana Moli and Bhikkhu Bodhi. And then you can also, as Steve mentioned, find... Um, many of the same discourses translated by 
to Nisarobiku online. So some of it, yeah. Some of that material is online. Yes, yes, yes. You can also buy the digital copy of all the Nikayas. So this is one of the Nikayas. This is the middle length. There's a long discourses, a connected discourses, and a numerical discourses. And there's another fifth one that's um, a collection of smaller works, including the Dhammapada, the Sutta Nipada. And and it's uh, something that you can actually purchase the online digital version, and then you can search for things, and it's really fun. Microphone. Well, it's just—it's just a real brief question. How how would I how would you look find for that? that? How would I find that? I mean, what would I ask for? Uh, what do, what do you how do you find it, sister? I mean, the, the where did you get the it's from Wisdom Publications? Wisdom the same, Publishing the same publishers for the book. Wisdom Publishing has them all on um, digital version. You can download them. Wow. And and it and they charge for it. Just so you know, it's, it's a lot cheaper than the book, though. Well, the it also, Sister Obiku has translated a lot of the Pali Canon. If you go to the Metaphorist website, you can download the whole thing there. And like once a month, I bring a bunch of books from Meta, including Pali Canon. There's a bunch of Pali Canon out there right now. So that what he, what Steve is referring to are the books called A Handful of Leaves, which are available for free distribution over in the corner of the. Um, the counter over there, and they those books have many of the the teachings translated there as well. So Would you repeat the one that you said about working with anger and regret and all that? Would yes, you it's it's number eight. It's entitled Effacement here, which will make sense when you read the discourse and look at the footnotes. Yeah. Yep, the middle length discourses of the Buddha, number eight. I don't think I need the mic. The world wants to hear your wisdom. <laughs> I'm reading a wonderful book that is just fun. And it is, and I'm I'm just be, I've just begun it, but it's The Book of Joy by the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu. Oh, it is so beautiful. And that's the second piece. We go from faith to joy next week, so it's a great entree. Second, the uh, endorsement of that book. It is beautifully written, and um, it is joyful to read. Can you say what it's called again? The Art of Joy. The Book of Joy. The Book of Joy. I'll uh, give it. Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu. And Graves. Is it Graves? Who's the uh, editor? Um, it's not Graves. I can't remember. A third endorsement. I downloaded it in the audio book form. And their voices are st- the people who do the reading sound like Tutu and the Dalai Lama, and it is just delightful to hear them just in their discourse. Yeah, love the book. <laughs> yep.
have, I have a Kindle, so it was a Kindle download. So that was on Amazon, just yeah. for the recording. So. Yeah, wonderful. <coughs> What came up for me in the group is that a couple of years ago when I had a surgery, I realized how everyone came forward with so much love. And I, I'm, the people that I'm closest to would say to me, oh, you know, somehow we're getting permission or it was just kind of like to really love you. So then when I ended up totally healthy and all of a sudden I noticed everybody backed off and no one told me that they loved me. It was like, oh my gosh, do I have to be in this state, you know, for you guys all to tell me you love me? So I realized how important it is and one of my group members said, just go back to those people and tell them, I'm going to tell you I love you no matter what. You know, I mean, I do anyway. But it was like the persons, one of something, several of the people I was closest to actually teach death and dying and they're really involved with people of any kind of illness or something in terms of showing up with love, but somehow the healthier a person is, the less love they get. It seems like, or at least I experienced, I said, wait a minute, that's not right. That's not a good motivation. So I will be talking to, I mean, I have, but this, this was really revealing for me to see how much love I got at that time. Back to the old song, Love for Sale. Get sick. <laughs> right, exactly. It's the only way, so. So, parting instructions. Um, did we pass out the homework? Everybody's got one? We got the homework? Okay, yeah. I'd like one too, Steve. So, we, we want to invite you to reflect upon faith. As we said, it's the, the Buddha, when the Buddha talked about the chain of dependent origination, in many, many times he talked about these 12 links. But in one sutta, the Upanisha Sutta, he talked about the transcendent chain. That when you, when you get to that 12th link and it's aging and death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair, the Buddha just substitutes for that suffering or dukkha. And from dukkha, we could continue to go around through the chain of suffering, or we can take a step outside that cycle, and that first step is faith, or sadha, which is also translated as confidence. And the faith is, in this case, the Buddha is clear about what he means. It's the faith that there is a way out of suffering. It's the glimmer of nibbana, it's, it's to see that there is something other than going round and round in craving and ignorance. And so you may have experiences already, I imagine you do or you wouldn't be sitting here, of that faith and that, that knowledge that there is something else and... That's the first step. And the second step is joy. Because there's joy that arises when we, when we catch that glimpse or view of faith, when we start to develop that. It's a relief. So we're going to work with that next week, that whole chain.
And so reflecting on faith in your life at this point or confidence. And then reflecting and writing, if you're so inclined, about these experiences of awakening, these little ahas or big ahas or shifts that bring more freedom. It can be something as simple as, wow, I really started to keep the fourth precept, changing my speech. And I've experienced what a difference that makes. And this trust in what the Buddha taught is developing as a result. And that kind of thing. So just whatever has come up for you in your life, in your practice, reflecting upon that to some degree and writing about it if you're inclined to do that. And we want to encourage the continued chanting of the five subjects for frequent recollection. And we'll close with that today. And then the meditation that I mentioned before that you can find in the Beyond Coping book, the Buddha's description of uh, a bit of an <clears throat> elaboration or shift on the, um, the Satipatthana Sutta, the Foundations of Mindfulness. And so there are a few readings. Um, we've got a collection of things uploaded AN95 is that uh, discourse from the Anguttara Nikaya that I talked about earlier, the four powers and the five fears. So you can read that, the four powers and five fears. It's in that document, AN9-5. That's, that's what that is. The Upanisa Sutta that we'll be looking at next week. And Beyond Coping, Advice on Death and Separation. It's pages 105 to 122. It's not a lot of reading, but you get a lot of reading in the HM Medical Guide to Dying, which will be lovely. <laughs> um, as I said, I have written a lot of articles and so forth over my lifetime. And a lot of what I said is also written. Some of it is a little lengthy. Some of it is a little lengthy, and I apologize for that. The, uh, I was invited to write an article for a uh, textbook on uh, a kind of cancer called mesothelioma, and it was a very technical uh, for physicians. And yet, because I was trying to educate physicians to treat patients as I would like them to be treated, it gives you an idea of what you can ask for. Um, that I'm delighted and uh, very happy to say that the book will be published in April this year. So I check one more box on my CV. Um, the other thing, this has been, or will be as of next week, five weeks of skimming the richness of this practice. And I, for one, uh, don't feel complete with it. I don't know if it's possible to com be complete with it. But I would like to continue the conversation. And I would like it to be a conversation amongst equals. This is not Bill Buckholz's chance to uh, teach. 
it is a chance for us each to um, share what it is like in our own lives to deal with aging, illness, and dying. And uh, awakening. And awakening. That is, I haven't gotten to that section yet, so forgive me for not mentioning it. I, the author is right next to me, so I really should be more careful about that. I'm just a messenger. I'm not the okay. author. <laughs> Could you sign for this, it's please? very clear to me. <laughs> the Buddha was brilliant. brilliant. He still is. Well, he's... The next one. Completely cool. <laughs> In so many ways. <laughs> um, so if you would be interested in this, I'm willing to do it for three sessions. If the group has legs, I'll continue it. So if, if this is something you want, you need to show up and participate, or it's going to... So... There's a logistical announcement. Where's the microphone? There's a microphone. No. no. So, so, so think about it, because the big question, I mean, Bill's told me he prefers to do it in an afternoon, and we do have the Tuesday evening people, and we spoke to them last night. Think about it, and we'll see if there's, if there's interest, and then I'll discuss it with Gil or somebody here at IMC to figure out when we can get this, or um, we found the option of the wellness center over... Uh, it's like five blocks from there, and it's even better if it's if it's in the afternoon because in the evenings we have to go up to Sequoia Hospital to get the key, and we got to find the guard because the guard station is closed. And so they're open till you know. So if it's in the afternoon there, and we and they have a room available, that that's a nice way to go, and they don't charge anything. So think about it for a week, and we'll talk about it next week. And it wouldn't happen right after this course, maybe a month, or maybe six weeks. I don't know, two to six weeks after this, because I have to arrange with IMC when this place. It could either be here or it could be at the Wellness Center, which is like four blocks from here on Brewster. Well, Bill says, he Bill says he prefers the afternoon. I don't know if the people on Tuesday evening are going to be happy about that, so that's why we'll have to firm this up. And then you're thinking of something monthly. Monthly. <clears throat> monthly until... Um, Until it's clear that it, people are, are wanting it or not wanting it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Next. I, really like, uh, I think it's not on. The green? Okay. Um, and going through the uh, five wishes, a lot of questions came up. Well, I have... And I have some questions that are I'd like to ask Bill, like a, like about CPR. I've heard so much um, negative about that. But I, do we get a chance to actually uh, like go through these, uh, or is that more what you're going to do in the Calumita um, group? There, I am working diligently on getting trained facilitators to help people with those conversations in education. Um, it has not yet happened. If you... Um, what county do you live in? I live in Oakland. Uh, the 
County Medical Society, Alameda Contra Costa County Medical Society has an active program. And if you get in touch with them, they have trained facilitators who can help you. Help you fill out the... Yes. The whole enchilada. Yeah, Alameda, just the medical, County Medical Society. The Santa Clara County Medical Society was supposed to do it, and they failed. So far. Uh, it seems like a deconstructed bridge. It's not going to cross that river. Is your uh, homework, is your thing going to be stay online yes. even though it ended? Because yes. I find myself going back and yes. just like, oh, my God, I didn't hear that the first time. But it's not going to disappear, it's is it? It's not going to disappear. We're going to leave that up on our website Thank at you. coronabv.org. And um, as we go forward, if there are more... Um, more offerings of this material, we might update things. So okay. Thank we'll you keep so it going. much. Oh, okay. People have been having trouble um, listening to the CD. Some people have been having trouble. So I'm going to put a link on our website to Ajahn Jeff's recordings of the same, oh, same thing. And probably to be on coping, too, while I'm at it. I'll just put a link to both. Great. Those. And it would be a matter of just clicking the way I listen to this, the talks. Uh, I don't. I think it'll just go to his site. I don't think we've got the capacity to put oh, okay. everything up there, but it should go the same way and play the same way. Okay. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much. Sure. So the time has come for our final, who knows when it's the final one, <laughs> the chant together. Well, at least at 3.30 it is. Today. <laughs> So it's right there on your homework sheet. I am of the nature to age. I have not gone beyond aging. I am of the nature to sicken. I have not gone beyond sickness. I am of the nature to die. I have not gone beyond dying. All that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise, will become separated from me. I am the owner of my kama, heir to my kama, born of my kama, related to my kama, abide supported by my kama. Whatever comma I shall do, for good or for ill, of that I will be the heir. Thus we should frequently recollect. And don't forget to bring images of something that conveys your sense of the serene, of the serene. The serene awakening, serenity, faith. that which is transcendent. So have a very productive week.
Thank you.